Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Although Louisiana's North Shore is less than a 40-minute drive from New Orleans, in reality, it's a world away. On this week's Louisiana Eats, we're traveling there to showcase the delicious fun that can be found. Bush is an unincorporated community located in northeastern St. Tammany Parish, over 50 miles from New Orleans. There, the McKnight family has accomplished the seemingly impossible, producing true foie gras raised entirely here in Louisiana. We'll tour their farm, and then we'll meet Jeremy and Alyssa Riley, who also have accomplished the seemingly impossible at Restaurant Cote and the Maple Room, located in Old Town Slidell. These high school sweethearts have carved out a very special place in the hearts and stomachs of the Slidell community for almost 10 years now. And Nick Asperdites never intended to be a restaurateur, but now finds himself the proprietor of two dockside restaurants and bars, the original Blue Crab on the south shore of Lake Pontchartrain, and a second iteration on the lake's north shore in Slidell. So buckle your seatbelt. We're taking a road trip on this week's Louisiana Eats. Foie gras, that's French for fat liver. This celebrated luxury food is found mostly in high-end restaurants where even a small amount is quite costly. Traditionally, foie gras production has centered in the Aquitaine region of France, where for hundreds of years, duck and geese have been carefully fattened in order to produce the large, ivory-colored lobes. Force-feeding is usually mentioned in conjunction with foie gras production, but the truth is wild birds in nature annually gorge themselves before migration. Domestically, that process is humanely mimicked by caretakers who gently hand-feed their birds a high-calorie meal that aids in the fattening, a process known as gavage. There has been limited foie gras production attempted in the U.S., but today, Ross McKnight is creating some of the most beautiful foie gras seen this side of the Atlantic Ocean at his farmstead, Backwater Foie Gras, in Bush, Louisiana. I got to know Ross, visiting with him weekly at the Crescent City Farmer's Market. What a thrill it was to finally visit the farm to learn all about the process. I'm Ross McKnight. I am one of the owners and the operations manager of Backwater Foie Gras. 
This is Dorothy McKnight, the farmer's wife, farmer, mother, homesteader. <laughs> Joining us there was Melise Diaz, the French woman who inspired it all with a taste of her homeland's foie gras. All started with a trip in France where we brought back some foie gras, mm -hmm. my husband and I. And we were very friends with them, so we wanted to share that little piece of joy. And I think that's how the idea started in their, in their head, and they decided to study to become foie gras farmers. Yeah, absolutely. And what was your job? What were you doing? I was in finance. Uh, I was a financial advisor. Finance, I did really well in, but it wasn't my vocation, you might say. I kind of knew. I think actually when I took that job, I told my boss, you know, full disclosure, my goal is actually to start a farm in three years. <laughs> we didn't know. We knew that we wanted to start a farm and that it would involve poultry. But it's very difficult to farm in general. It's very difficult to start a farm. It's very difficult to start a farm that uses what might be called regenerative practices or just pasture-based practices. So it was helpful to find a niche and they provided that idea and once we started doing some research we realized well it's really not done but we're crazy enough to try so yeah i went to france uh, i went <laughs> to visit my parents that summer ross sent us over on a mission <laughs> to meet foie gras farmers like mm -hmm. that did that and the farmer explained to me everything like how the ducks cannot be scared how if you see like they don't digest you can't force feed them. Like, forced feeding is not a good thing to do, actually. He walked us through everything. I took a lot of notes. We studied a couple of really old books that I had found in, the, in an old, like, library. And he was like, the farmer was like, you know, I studied a lot. That's a lot of experience. I don't, I don't know that you can do that with, like, by yourself, just winging it, basically. So I told Ross, I was like, I don't know, like, are you sure you want to abandon your job and do that? And he was like, yeah, let's do it. So he did it. You're French, so you had doubts that we could produce. I had doubts. <laughs> and little by little, he got there. Honestly, they got there, all of them, like, cooking their product. It's as good as what I can have in France. After hearing the amazing tale, I couldn't wait to get out into the fields to meet the birds and see the operation. We began at a modified chicken trailer where the baby Pekin ducks were peeping up a storm. This is, these are some baby Pekin ducks. These are actually for Miss River and for um, Vicki Brennan's. And how old are these? These are just about three weeks old, yeah. Really? Actually, no, these are just two weeks old. Yeah. They're they so grow fast. Big. They grow fast, yeah. They go really fast. And so we just keep them with, you know, steady supply of fresh water. They have a non-GMO grain ration and um, you have to give them little little tiny pieces of rock. It's called grit. So they can um, those actually are retained in the gizzard where they grind up their food. It's some muscle surrounding their stomach. How long have you been growing out specifically for restaurants? 
Well, we, we've started to transition mainly into that model because it's, since we're such small scale, it's the most sustainable way for us to do business is, you know, okay, you know, what are you doing? What are you trying to accomplish? And, um, you know, you want a superior product and you want it local. So we collaborate in that way. Um, and that also allows some really interesting things to happen on the plate, right? Because it's not just what's available. Oh, like I want X number of chickens. Well, no, it gets a little more detailed than that. I'm serving this type of dish. You know, I need these sorts of elements. And then we might choose a specific bird for those elements that they need. And so it's, you know, it becomes something that's really part of the terroir rather than just like, you know, off a truck, you know, from Minnesota. <laughs> How old will these guys be when they show up on the plate at Margie's? These will be eight weeks, and I actually harvest these early um, just because they get to a really nice manageable weight, like between three and four and a half pounds. Um, and then they're really tender, but they also have dark meat. And so they have a lot, like, a proliferation of really dark meat, beautiful, succulent dark meat. So, yeah, meat chickens grow fast. So they'll go, at about three weeks, they'll be out on pasture, and they'll be on pasture until eight weeks when they go to slaughter. Cool. Foie gras production requires special feeding that takes place for just a few weeks before the birds and their foie gras head to market in the fall. This is kind of our main gavage barn. This is the rosary barn, actually, because you can fit 50 ducks in it. So we separate it into five different sections. You'll see there's a rail going through at the top, down the middle. That's where we suspend the, the gavage, which is the funnel that we feed them with. We will start the uh, pre-gavage process while they're on pasture, which is about a week long. So we give them as much feed as they want for an hour a day, and that's when they start to gorge themselves. So it kind of kicks in that instinct, well, hey, I need to prepare for, you know. And so they're going to eat, and they're going to stuff themselves. And you'll, you'll go in there at the end of the feeding, and, you know, their crops will be really large. You'll see it in the front of their chest. Uh, and that starts to dilate the esophagus, so it has a greater capacity. So this is something that would you know, they would do to themselves if they were going to go on a long migratory flight and they would start to gorge themselves. So we're simulating that, right? And then once that process occurs, then we can bring them into gavage and we can feed them uh, around 400 grams per duck every day of corn. So we have to prepare the corn a certain way to make it eminently digestible for ducks. So we cook the corn, add some uh, olive oil. Sometimes we have whey from the cow and milk. Or skim milk. Yeah. Or skim milk, yeah. So we'll add that. Uh, and then basically we have, so wherever you see these little hips, right, these little metal piping sections here, uh, this is where one of these partitions would be attached. So this basically is the area where 10 ducks would be. So they'll be in here, their water will be there. If I'm going to come in and feed them, I have a mobile partition that I have with me all the time. And so that'll go about here where I'm standing and I'll herd the ducks behind it. So they'll be here. I'll be sitting there on a little stool. Uh -huh. I'll have my bucket of corn, my little scoop, and then um, I'll take one duck at a time. I'll put them between my knees, uh -huh. kind of like this. I'll be sitting kind of like this. They'll be between my knees. And then basically you insert the funnel into their esophagus. Uh -huh. And they don't have, you know, cartilaginous rings or nerve endings or anything like that. The duck's biology is so different from ours, you know, that there's no suffering at all. And also um, you have to know that if there was suffering, they wouldn't make foie gras. Yeah. Because they would be stressed, and so it would Correct. 
uh, it would prevent them from digesting correctly and making the foie. So it is really important that they don't suffer, that they're not scared by other animals or dog or anything. They have to feel good to make good foie gras. You know, if you're doing something against an animal's nature, generally speaking, you're not going to have a good product. Um, but this is, again, this is we're replicating something that occurs in nature. Just like you might, uh, you know, a cow, for instance, will eat seed heads, right? It'll eat grain in nature. But if we want beef that is grain finished, maybe we raise the cow on pasture, but we want to finish it on grain. Um, well, they're not, they wouldn't necessarily have access to all of that grain at once, mm -hmm. but we bring it to them and say, here it is. And then we get beautiful results from that. So that's kind of the, the methodology and the philosophy of, of foie gras. How has it felt when you go into a restaurant that if somebody's using your product, they're calling it out by name on the menu, which means that you're in this echelon that very few people are able to achieve. So I have to really thank uh, Jeff Hansel over at Oxlot 9, yeah. um, when Oxlot 9 was still in, mm -hmm. in downtown Covington, because he was our first customer, I think, ever. Yeah, the first time we ever sat down and saw our name on a restaurant's menu was Oxlot. Um, and that was really, that was really surreal. Yeah, the first time that? it just blew that me was, away. Yeah. It just blew me away mm -hmm. that, you know, it was it something was so good. we could do yeah. because, you know, it's like farming is that first, really, that first vocation of, of mankind. And it's just really strange when you've, you brought something up from, you know, a tiny little fuzzball and then created this beautiful thing with it cooperating with you. And then, yeah, it's it's some way it's it's elevated to a level by people who devote their time and energy and their talents to the pursuit of cooking food well. And so they're really honoring it more than even maybe you could. Mm -hmm. So that was that was a really beautiful thing. I think I even cried a little bit. <laughs> but it was just like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe we can do this. And, you know, maybe we can really... Yeah, that was towards the beginning. Maybe we can do something yeah. beautiful. For it had been a year. Because that was the goal, really, like, to do something beautiful. Something I've considered, you know, where will we be in 10 years? I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd like people to, to set up some kind of system where people can learn while on a working farm and then apply that, I'm not so certain that backwater needs to be everywhere, you know? It needs to be everywhere as far as like the legacy and the, where people learn the skill and how they came by it. And, and uh, But I'd like to see a, a unique touch uh, spread across the state. I'd like to see more foie gras farms. I'd like to see people learn this ancient tradition, you know, this at least 5,000 year old tradition that humans have done since humans were humans. visit to Backwater Farmstead in Bush, Louisiana, where the McKnight family produces backwater foie gras. That was farmer Ross McKnight and his wife Dorothy, and family friend and foie gras muse, Melise Diaz. 
Look for backwater foie gras on restaurant menus or meet the farmer himself at the Crescent City Farmer's Market. You can hear a longer version of our farm tour at poppytooker.com. What animals besides ducks play a vital role at the McKnight's Farmstead in Bush, Louisiana? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now celebrating their centennial by donating one million bowls of beans to Second Harvest Food Bank. What a way to say thank you to the community they call home. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What animals besides ducks play a vital role at the McKnight's Farmstead in Bush, Louisiana? Due to the very seasonal nature of foie gras, the McKnight's realized early on that they would have to expand their offerings. Guinea hens and Red Ranger broilers were added to the mix early on. And Ross has been turning heads with what he calls a Creole breast chicken. One of France's most celebrated birds, the breast chicken sports a bright red comb, snowy white feathers, and deep blue legs and feet, which is said to resemble the French flag. The name is protected by French law, and they only export 5% of their birds. So to taste what the French claim to be the world's finest quality table bird, you'll have to seek out a Creole breast from backwater. Along with all the birds, Ross has added native Gulf Coast sheep, a milk cow named Patty, and most recently, a draft horse named Earl. Earl is now taking the place of the gas-powered tractor. Those four-legged creatures are all vital members of the McKnight's farmstead as they ruminate the pasture land, 
regenerating the sod, and guaranteeing essential biodiversity on the farm. Big thanks to the entire McKnight family for producing such great Louisiana Eats. Locals love St. Tammany Parish for its laid-back lifestyle, delicious cuisine, and businesses that are family-oriented and family-run. All these elements come together at Restaurant Cote and the Maple Room. Located in Old Town Slidell, Restaurant Cote offers upscale eats with casual vibes, while the adjoining Maple Room bar and music venue is as comfortable as your living room. Chef Jeremy Riley and his wife Alyssa opened their business in 2013, and while growing the restaurant, grew their own family as well, adding two children to the Riley family mix. We sat down with the ambitious North Shore couple to learn how they and their business came together. I guess for you all, this kind of began in high school, huh? Yeah, um, I was uh, I was a troubled child, and she was a great child in high school. And um, you know, her parents didn't really want us dating, so we had to do the whole Romeo and Juliet thing where we snuck around and you know did it the wrong way. We definitely but, uh, did. Um, and then we went to college, and she went to LSU, and I went to Louisiana Tech. And after one year, she called me and says, "No, I'm moving up to." Come live with you. And she did. Help you find your way. And she did. <laughs> and so we graduated. The rest is history. Yep. We graduated and then moved back to Slidell. And got married shortly thereafter. Immediately. Yep. How did you go into the restaurant business, Jeremy? Why has food been your life? I started when I was 13 at a place called Dockside Seafood in Picayune. And they taught me a lot but mainly work ethic for a 515 an hour they they taught me how to work uh, I mean I did everything from grading seafood fishing with them you know boiling and frying and all that the whole process yeah yeah and they taught me to appreciate the process of it you know from the catching the fish taking care of all parts of the fish using it for stocks and you know trying to do minimal waste um worked at a pizza joint in college <laughs> um learned a little bit there though it's always just been in my blood. It's, it's what I know. It's what I'm good at. Um, and so then I moved out to California for a little while. My best friend called me and asked me to come help him with his failing restaurant. So I did and realized there was no hope in it. So then we proceeded to open up his newer restaurant. And then I was approached about this building that had been sitting there since Katrina in Old Town Slidell. Yeah, in Old Town Slidell, and it was dilapidated and disgusting, but you could kind of see if you polished it up that it would be, uh, be an old-school French Quarter look. And so uh, then my father-in-law knew that I was interested and kind of pushed me to go ahead and do it. And so at 26, I decided to open up Restaurant Cote in the Maple Room. 
and it's become your baby, your pride and joy. <laughs> yep. Now, Alyssa, you are a wife and partner in every way, but you actually have a different career. I do. I'm a nurse um, at a local hospital in Covington, St. Tammany. Um, I've been there altogether 11 years, um, so pretty much right out of college while he was he likes to call me the breadwinner for the first three years because I 100%. made the money while he was putting his restaurant together. But you're right. We, we do work alongside each other, and I kind of stay the silent partner, more customer, quality control, try out the different things. But I do try to stay with him for advice, and he comes to me a good bit for those things. Let's talk about Restaurant Cote and the Maple Room. Mm -hmm. What are these two entities? So um, Restaurant Cote is, the word Cote is a Creole word, and it means at the home of. Um, so that's what Cote means? At the home of. And the whole concept behind it is, yeah, we serve upper class food, we serve nice food, but um, we don't want you to have to feel like you have to have a sports coat. You know, we want it to feel like you're at home just eating some good home-cooked food. Um, And so I had the restaurant side, um, and then I have the Maple Room. And I named the Maple Room the Maple Room is because I have a 43-foot bar that we built out of maple wood. And I wanted to separate the two entities because um, for Alyssa and I, when we come to New Orleans, we'll pick like five restaurants and go sit and get a cocktail and appetizer to each and just eat our way through New Orleans. Well, we don't like sitting at tables. No matter how much the food costs, you know, we'll spend whatever we have to, but we want to sit at a bar. So that was the concept behind it. You could come sit at a bar and have the same quality food, quality cocktails, or if you wanted to be more intimate, um, you could sit in the restaurant and uh, have a little more intimacy where it's quieter and, you know, a little more formal. Have you found a difference between the clientele, those who – gravitate to the maple room and those who want to eat at restaurant cote yeah i would say there's a difference um but a lot of the clientele they use the maple room for their daily lunch and drinks and cocktails and then they use the restaurant for you know their special events their anniversaries their birthday parties you know i learned early on that you can't just survive off of anniversaries and birthdays and so um, with my menu, I tried to change, adapt, yeah, <laughs> make it yeah. make it what what you the know, people like. Keep them coming back. My gimmick's always been that I don't have anything frozen. Um, I grow some of the vegetables in my backyard. I have a garden behind the restaurant um, that I grow some of our vegetables in. I don't use anything in a freezer. Um, I only have a freezer strictly for my bars. Uh, I have ice cubes and stuff like that, and I try and get all my product from within sixty miles of my front door. So I don't use like a Cisco or a big distributor. I use all local people, local farmers. Did the kids spend much time at the restaurant? Oh, yes. Brooklyn always likes to open daddy a beer. Or, you know, <laughs> she's just, she wants she's this She's our so resident bad. bartender. Yeah. She goes out and she talks to all the customers. Everybody loves them. You know, our kids really are like a fixture in our little establishment. Brooklyn is now 10. And then um, Jameson, he's six. He'll be seven in September. Yeah. They're so, proud of proud of what we have. And anytime if you meet Brooklyn, she'll tell you all about Restaurant Cote. So she really enjoys it. And then Jameson, he's more our quiet child. So he comes in, gets his crackers from the back, <laughs> tells his dad, hey, and then kind of goes on to himself, though. 
Well, we know Brooklyn's mixing drinks. Is is anybody trying to help you out in the kitchen? Anybody looking like they're food interested? <laughs> no, you know, growing up Brooklyn as a young child, she would walk through the kitchen and anything you handed her, she would eat. Hand her a spoonful of gumbo, hand her anything she would eat. As she's grown older, she's kind of, I guess, developed her own palate. So she's not as open-minded, but I was raised in the car industry and I promised myself I would never work in the car industry. <laughs> and I'm raising my kids in the restaurant industry and I'm kind of like, I don't know if I want you guys in this. So You, <laughs> you know, see all the bads of it. Yeah, and, I mean, it is, it's hard. And there's a lot of things that happen in the restaurants and it's an interesting environment at times. And so the Food Network kind of makes it a little bit more uh, unrealistic Glamorous. than it really is. Absolutely, you know? I know. You, you didn't go to culinary school. No, I, no. You learned on the job. On the job, um, I had a my mom was the worst cook in the world, um, and I hope she hears this because I remind her every time she's horrible. <laughs> um, but my great grandma, uh, my grandpa, all my hunting camps, I just learned. I was even to this day, even with my staff, I don't think I know it all. Um, if they have an idea, I'm, I'm always wanting to talk about it, and you know maybe I'll use it. But even um, your customers, we yeah. had a, we we thrive off of feedback. I've always. I've never thought I knew it. I've always tried to just uh, listen and learn. Mm -hmm. And so throughout my steps of life, throughout my different phases, I've just taken a little bit of knowledge from every person I could and used what was good of it and learned from the bad of it. <laughs> well, with Restaurant Cote being such a family experience for your family, I imagine that makes it that way for a lot of other families, too. Do you, you see families in your restaurant much? Well, so the Maple Room, even though you look at it as a bar, it's actually family-friendly. I have the entire building under a restaurant permit, and so St. Patrick's Day, all these, we do a lot of block parties. So, yeah, all of our kids are friends with our regulars kids so we all know each other all our regulars kids come in there they bring them after school you know because they want to you know a cocktail for the ride home and the kids <laughs> want a burger because they just got out of school and so you know we know a lot of our regulars kids they come through there and all the holidays um, that we throw events for they yeah. always bring their families and the regulars have become friends who have become family we, yeah. we still stay doing a lot with uh, a lot of the people that have come through the restaurant this has been such a treat getting to know you all. Thank you so much for bringing your great story to us here at Louisiana Eats. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. That was Jeremy and Alyssa Riley of Restaurant Cote and the Maple Room in Old Town Slidell. Nick Asperdites didn't originally intend to open one restaurant, much less two. His first one, located on New Orleans' lakefront in the city's West End neighborhood, was supposed to be a fuel dock. But building on the water isn't cheap, and he had to defray those costs somehow. So in 2013, the Blue Crab Restaurant and Oyster Bar was born. 
The restaurant became a hit and helped revive the tradition of lakeside seafood dining to the West End. Hoping to expand on the success he'd had in New Orleans, eight years later, Nick and his family sought out another waterfront location, this time along the northern shores of Lake Pontchartrain. In 2021, they opened the Blue Crab at the Point Marina in Slidell. We joined Nick to learn how this unlikely restaurateur got his start in the business. Nick, had you been in the restaurant industry before? No, I've never had a restaurant. (laughs) Well, did anybody ask you if maybe you needed to um, have your brain examined? They they thought I was crazy, yeah. (laughs) I mean, my wife didn't speak to me for a year. She wasn't happy. You were still a pioneer at the New Orleans lakefront after Hurricane Katrina. Why did you want to have that business? Uh, the long story short is we were trying to bring back what we lost at West End. And that's as close as I could get. Got with the levee board, worked out, and then ended up building the building. I was not going to operate it, but it didn't work out, and I ended up just deciding to do it myself. And nine years later, I'm there every day. Tell me a little bit about how you maintain that authentic feeling. Well, this is what we don't have a walk in freezer. Everything has to come in fresh every day. So we maintain it that way. We're very consistent in our recipes and following them. And it's the view. It's all, it's it's you can see the lake and it's and if I keep it simple but do it right, it works every time. It has to require some very special relationships with purveyors. Well, we're fortunate my oyster suppliers provide me with all of my oysters. Only Area 3, which is Louisiana-Mississippi border, all the way out in the Gulf. So it's very sandy. It's very consistent. And they're actually the only oysters I will take. If they're not from that area, I'll send them back. And it, they, if they harvest that afternoon, I get them in the morning. Harvest in the morning, I get them in the afternoon. So we try to keep them as fresh as we can. That makes a difference. What's the scene like on any given day? The, the are weekends the- are the biggest. We have bands Friday, Saturday, Sunday, two Saturday, two Sunday, and it's just downstairs. It's open air. It's cool most of the time, and people just come and dance and enjoy themselves. And Even at the very hottest time, there's always, always a great a breeze. breeze at the lake. Always front. a breeze, always, and it makes it really nice. You have that big outdoor space. You ever have you ever have pets come along? Pets are pets are welcome. You just got to maintain them. They can't bark, can't bite. You know, just keep them under the table, and it is fine. No, it's it's we're not only pet friendly, we're child friendly. You know, we don't worry with them. We have crayons for them to draw. I just ask them not to draw on the walls. But other than that, we let them have their way, and and it makes it fun for the family too, especially downstairs. We can close the gates. And the kids can run amok and dance and whatever they want to do. Nick, you must have um, mended things with your angry wife when you <laughs> opened up the Blue Crab. Because how in the world did you then keep the wife and open oh, a second good. restaurant? Yeah, she, got, she understood it finally. And uh, some of it was she didn't want me working that hard, but found out it was it's, it's a lot of fun. The restaurant Slidell is run by my oldest son. My middle son's, I have three sons, my middle son's wife runs the New Orleans restaurant. And I just brought on my youngest son that kind of goes between all of everything. 
Slidell also has a, a small marina with it, so he's helping with all that. So that makes it work. The family being there makes all the difference in the world. So what made you open Slidell? A friend of mine owned the property, and it was the old dock restaurant. And he wanted something there, and he likes the blue crab, and he asked, would you just come see it? And I went and looked. It was a mess. And I said, oh, you know, we thought about it for a while. I said, all right, well, I'll do it. It morphed into just I had to rebuild the building. There's only four original walls. And then he had some other things happening, and I ended up saying, well, I'm not going to have a landlord. I don't know. So I bought the whole thing. And now I run the, my son runs the restaurant. We have the marina. And it just kind of snowballed into what I thought was easy. But it's, it's fun, too. It's a lovely community. I mean, the people, everybody has a boat. I never saw anything like it. Everybody's on their boat, and they come have a very large dock, and it's fun. It's actually, it's, it's different than New Orleans, but it's a lot of fun. How about the North Shore? And let's talk about what it takes to be a restaurateur on the water. Well, I'll tell you what, my wife, I was going to do a third one in, on the water, and she explained to me that you could lose it all in one storm, which made me think, yeah, two restaurants on the water, that's enough. That's a lot of exposure. But we went through one storm in Slidell, and the building did just fine. We, we were worried. It didn't move an inch. Nothing happened. So we're very pleased with that. New Orleans is pretty much the same way. And we well, we know what to do for the storms, and it works out well. We knock on wood, though. So have there been any weather incidents that surprised you? Well, here they do it all the time. The weather will change in five minutes. I mean, we have at one point, we have awnings on our second deck here in New Orleans, and we couldn't get them down. So I got some of the kitchen guys, and we got some big knives, and we just cut them down. And it turns out there was a lightning started striking and this, that, and the other. And I'm kind of hanging on a railing, and they're holding me up so I don't fall off. And we got them down. As I turned to look into the bar windows, you could see my wife's friend standing there. And as I get, went in and it's over, I said, don't ever tell her. They were already on the phone. It was, <laughs> it was all right. Though. So, you know, we had to do what we had to do. That was Nick Asprodites of the Blue Crab Restaurant and Oyster Bar in New Orleans West End and at the Point Marina in Slidell. Coming up next, we meet Chef Jeff Mattia, who operates Pyre Barbecue on the Mandeville Trace. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, 
because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. Though he's been on the restaurant scene since 2010, Chef Jeff Mattia didn't move to Louisiana until well into his culinary career. While his career was centered in New Orleans for the first four years, Jeff and his family felt decidedly more at home across the lake in St. Tammany Parish. There, he found the slower pace of life shared much in common with his Hartford, Connecticut birthplace. So when the opportunity to open his own North Shore eatery finally presented itself, Jeff was all in, opening Pyre Provisions in Covington before the COVID-19 pandemic. Jeff, what made you want to go after this live fire cooking? Well, I mean, the biggest thing I think was you can't control it. Right. As a chef, you need to you have controls. You have this. You can sl- slow a burner down. You can slow down this. You can do things that you can do. I think with life, using cooking over fire and cooking with fire, I mean, you it brings elements of itself with it. Like, so you're going to you know, you're going to bring smoke. You're going to bring char. You're going to bring the bitterness of something that's burnt. Like all of those things are immediately coming. And that's not even something you're doing. That's the that's the element that you're cooking with that's doing it. So I think that part of it was more to me, meant more to me to play with and be part of. And um, when we first opened the restaurant, we were doing, we were whole roasting fish. Um, we were, we had three steaks over wood fire grills on the menu. I mean, we had minimal barbecue, but we had some barbecue there. I mean, we were doing our brisket. I think we had a half chicken on the menu. And so where does the barbecue thing come in so strong, Jeff? I've always loved barbecue. I've always been a huge fan of it. We embraced it with the restaurant, with the live fire cooking and the wood fire backing to use it as an element, not so much as the backbone of the restaurant. And then here comes our friend COVID and it takes the restaurant down and we didn't know what to do. So me and my chef de cuisine were sitting around and we're talking. And I said to him, I'm like, dude, we can't put this food in a box. Like, you can't translate what we were doing. A whole roasted fish isn't going to travel well <laughs> right. for takeout. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, what do we pick it off the bone and give them the, a pile of meat? Like, at that point, you can't. What do you do? Like, we need to reinvent something. We need to turn. We need to, to reestablish something. How long was Pyre open before the COVID thing? Three months. Oh, dear God. Yeah. So you had three beautiful months, and then here comes COVID. So we opened in mid-November. So November was pretty much a wash of 19. We had December of 19, January of 19, February started slowing down and we started seeing something that was going to happen. Um, January 2020. And then all of a sudden, here comes March of 2020 and boom, it's gone. Everything, everything, we lost, everything went out, bank accounts negative, 
Oh, my God. Everything just, boom, it was all gone. And I just remember sitting and looking at my wife. She's like, you're going to just do what you do. You're going to get through it. I mean, we put that little teeny barbecue menu together just to get an ambulance to take out that people could actually take get out, take out. And we still did this thing. We still did our grits the same way. We still did our mac and cheese and the grits the same way that we were doing them, where we're actually building them to order. We're not sitting, nothing sitting in steam tables. And it just became to this nature that we started rebuilding. Um, but it, I mean, it was definitely, it was definitely something, but I mean, I, it was definitely something, but isn't that interesting that you, the barbecue lesson came from COVID had, had you ever done much of that professionally? Um, I have, I've done, um, a couple different things competition wise, um, over the, over the course of my life. I was also a captain for hogs for the cause for years. Um, so I was going on five years as a captain with the hogs, ho- which, on a hog which team? team, uh, born to grill. <laughs> who else was on the team with you? Uh, Eric Cook, who was also a very, very good friend. Um, yeah. But me and him were co- kind of co-captain of the team for about five years. I've always said it as a chef. So I've been a professional chef since 1994. And you go into these barbecue competitions and you got, you think the best dish you've ever put together and you taste good, it looks good, everything about it, and you come in 60th. Uh. And then you and you got and there's some someone that's a, just a backyard cook is the one who wins the whole thing. And it's like it almost takes the element of what am I doing as a chef if I if I can't do this? Yeah. Am I thinking too hard? Am I not doing this? And then all of a sudden you start getting into it, you realize how much is behind barbecue to make it get to that on a plate. And it's the love of what you do and the love of cooking and everything you do. You get to the point you're like, you guys are doing all this and you're putting in a styrofoam box. And it's like now it's now it's to the point it's resonating with us where our barbecue is actually I'm proud of what we're putting out. I think our brisket is probably hands down one of the best ones oh um, i'll second that the barbecue saved the day at pyre provisions it did, did it it did and uh, i mean and, and then led into us getting a, a little food truck trailer that was going to neighborhoods serving the barbecue in neighborhoods and we just kept building and building a brand and pushing putting keeping that logo in front of everyone in august 2022 the strain from the pandemic proved to be too much for jeff's covington restaurant and pyre provisions closed its doors for good But Jeff was able to pivot quickly. In 2021, he built on the success of his pop-up and opened a new restaurant concept, Pyre Barbecue on the Mandeville Trace. Pyre Barbecue, it's in Mandeville, right on the trailhead. I wanted a neighborhood barbecue place. I wanted something that what we did, what resonated out of the pandemic became, and we went. that's what Pyre Barbecue is. And it's everything that we put together to make it work over the, through the pandemic and centralized and focused it all right into barbecue. The history of the building, it was all, at one point it was called a shiver shack from what <laughs> everyone was telling me. It was a snowball stand in a hot dog restaurant. Uh-huh. So I always said, I was growing up in Connecticut, living but near the beach, we didn't have golf carts back then. We rode our bikes, but we, used to, we had something that we used to ride our bike and get ice cream or go get a hot dog. And it was somewhere we used to go all the time as kids. And my parents never worried about us. We were like, we're going to get an ice cream. We just pedal our bikes off and go disappear and get, come back with ice cream cones. And I wanted that to be at this. I wanted that this neighborhood just reminded me of where, where I grew up in Connecticut. So when we opened Pyre Barbecue, I wanted to have the hot dogs on the menu. So they are. I wanted to have a really good burger. And then we have the gourmet hot dogs, which we're doing a all beef brisket hot dog. So they're absolutely delicious hot dogs. And we're just trying to do the right things there. And then um, at the end of the the relationship, before we opened, I 
became friends with Jeff Robinson, who owns Just Chillin' Ice Cream. Uh-huh. That's in Mandeville. And we decided to partner with them. So we're actually serving their ice cream, which is pro- really, really, really good ice cream. And um, so there's, you, you kids can come get their ice cream cone now. And we have all of it, all the little elements there at the little neighborhood place to be in that community. Jeff, this was such a special visit. Come back and talk to us again soon. Thank you. I look forward to being back on your show again. Thank you for having me. Jeff Mattia, owner of Pyre Barbecue in Mandeville. To learn more about the restaurant, visit pyrebarbecue.com. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of episodes are available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, and the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. And from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, Producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, writer Becky Reitz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. (laughs) 